Episode 124, dated Friday the 1st of November 2009, Preserving Games, and Halo 3 ODST. This week we welcome back our webmeister and veteran of game hounds and the widget, the cantankerous, irascible, but extremely learned and entertaining, Commander Tim Wilsey. How you doing, Tim? I'm well. How about yourself? Pretty good. Tony? Oh yeah, I'm here. I always feel like I leave you out. So we got Tim on to talk about a subject very dear to his heart, the preservation of games. After that, Tony and I will be fully reviewing Halo 3 ODST, continuing our game club run-up to the holidays, a.k.a. Christmas. Let's just go straight to the main feature. No news this week. So, Tim, this is something we know very little about, Tony and I. It's not something your average gamer thinks about all that much, but put it like this. Video games have been around for decades. The materials they're stored on often degrade or the servers are shut down, which means, without care... We could lose some of them forever. What are some people doing to prevent this? There's, there's a couple projects out there as far as um, uh, keeping them in museum. I know there's, um, there's a couple of examples that are actually in the um, uh, the, the U.S. government actually has in uh, the, I think it's, is it the Smithsonian? I think it was um, just introduced um, a couple of uh, like space war. And a couple of older arcade machines have officially been in, kind of indoctrinated, um, and therefore that means that they'll be, you know, cared for, preserved, and maintained to make sure that they're they are in their original state, so they can be continually enjoyed um, by generations to come. Um, and a lot of people, you know, just uh, on a on a personal level, I have a lot of friends that, um, you know, they'll they'll actively go out to flea markets, garage sales, that kinds of things. And it's it's almost like a rescue mission for them. Well, they'll they'll find these titles and they'll take them back. They take very good care of these games. They they see it as that uh, they're now adopting um, these systems. And I've done it myself, where I'll go out and I'll I'll find a CDI at the the bottom of a pile of of a bunch of stuff, and it'll be you know parts of it will need repair or uh, replacement lasers or that kinds of things, and you know take it back and put the work into it to fix it. And arcade preservationists are are great examples of this. I think it's less common on the console. Uh, side of things, uh, largely because it's the uh, console, no matter how old they are, but consoles are still kind of the throwaway idea of if you find a beat-down Atari 2600, generally, unless it was the one that you had when you were a child and actually have true nostalgic uh, value attached to it, generally you're not going to put any effort into repairing or restoring it because you'll simply just be able to hold out and get another one that's already yeah. in great condition. Yeah. But arcade, arcade machines, pinball machines, any of that kind of stuff, uh, those, since they're so much more rare and uh, they weren't always preserved, I mean, so many of them have landed in uh, uh, you know garbage dumps and that kind of thing over the years. Um, that people really will find them and they'll restore them like a like a classic car or or any other uh, piece of old wonderfulness that people want to keep their hands on. I got this wonderful image in my head of you walking around these what we call in the UK car boot sales and just like uh, CDI there. I see you got that. So uh, how much you want that? Five bucks. I'll give you two dollars. <laughs> no, no, we I, we do it all the time. Actually, um, there is quite a few thrift stores. Um, I know in the states that I, I mean, yeah, I, I've lived on, I've lived on the east coast, and now I live set dead center in the middle of the country, and it's very much the same. Uh, thrift stores, garage sales, those are fantastic places to find these kinds of things. Uh, it's like they're like it. I, I, it's it's akin to uh, antique antiquities. It's antique shopping for nerds is really what it is. I would so love to go to an antique arcade shop and just go into the back room where the guy is basically taking 15 old arcade cabinets and swapping bits out of them and you've got some that are running some that are half running and you've got some things that are cobbled together and some things that are just like a plate with wires coming out of it attached to a monitor which could electrocute and kill you I, I, oh 
just thinking about that. I mean, it's it's the closest thing I can think of to actually getting into a proper old arcade, which in England, I'm, I don't know if you know this one, Tim. They don't exist anymore. Yeah, they're, 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 I have yeah. lamented this fact in the past. They don't exist. We don't have it's the same. It's the same thing in the States here. Uh, and we've talked about this before. I'm right. I dropped, yeah. apparently it was a bombshell I dropped on you that I used to run an arcade. Yeah. It wasn't my arcade. It was somebody else's. I just ran it for them. But still. Just, count, just counted the money. Uh, the funny thing is there was an arcade. It was the arcade that I grew up playing in as a kid. We were in the same uh, mall, and they were on the other end of it. And I would go down there, and they would, and vice versa. Uh, they were a mom and pop kind of thing. I was a corporate-owned monstrosity. And we would just hang out in the back room and muck around with machines and fix and pinball and it's very much what you described it's uh, a bunch of wires and tools hanging up on the wall and you just you fix things like an, like an old auto shop yeah. so, no I, I have nostalgia but, for that as well but what you've kind of described there is that, you know, the classic thing I guess that we all think about in, in preservation is you know going to I don't know either looking on eBay or just going to a car boot sale finding this old hardware which was some kid dearly beloved uh, piece of hardware at some point and now their parents are just selling it off and I, I guess a lot of that still actually exists I know I occasionally certainly if I'm at one of these places I always look just to see if someone's getting rid of something they have no idea what they're getting rid of for a ridiculously cheap price so um, but that's only one very very small I guess <laughs> way to preservation stuff which is just picking out of these you know, these flea bins and looking on eBay so what else sure. is there uh, well, I mean, there's, there, and it depends on who you are. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends that, um, well, I, I've, I have a friend, um, that, uh, Adam, I've, I've talked to him about, at uh, great lengths on other shows and things. Um, he is very much, he is a hardcore collector. Uh, his, his collection is absolutely phenomenal. He, uh, knows the games. He knows the history of games. He keeps a careful eye. He has a, he has a, he has a great ability to find rarities. Uh, at great prices, and then he uh, fixes them up or uh, in some way restores them. And sometimes he'll sell them, uh, usually to people that he knows will take care of them. Uh, other times he just adds them to his personal collection. And um, he is the kind of person that, you know, the exact person that goes out and buys things and then finds them. Now, he didn't, the reason he does this now is that when he was younger, he didn't have all this stuff and he wanted all this stuff and now yeah. he has this ability. So his nostalgia is coming from that area and it's, it's not, a, it's not bad. It's just, it's, it's not any, it's not any less valuable than the other types of nostalgia for these items. It's just a different kind. My nostalgia comes from the area of, I do not buy, and this is a kind of a cool new term we can coin around on, on, uh, on digital cowboys is, um, uh, new, new retro. I do not buy new to me retro games I have what I've always had I see what uh, you mean so you wouldn't say buy I'm trying to think of one retro game you ha- wouldn't have played you wouldn't say buy Switch on the Sega CD if you hadn't played it before and loved it correct correct because if I I mean there are times like I'll be at a, at a store a lot of times when I'm, when I'm with Adam when he's on looking for deals and I'll find like an N64 game they'll be like oh you know what I didn't get that when it was out I'll get that now why not but I have no emotional attachment to it. I'll certainly mm. take care of the game, but I won't cherish it and maintain it mm. and 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 love it, uh, it, it, which is kind of almost kind of painful that I can attach that word to an inanimate object, but I will in this case, um, that game. Uh, whereas if you look at something like my Sega Genesis, uh, you know, I, I, I care for that thing. I, I mm. take it out. I clean it. I make sure the plastic stays nice. And um, kind of like moisturize is, is actually the term for it because the plastic will turn brittle over the years. My Super Nintendo, I want to make sure that the plastic 
doesn't turn horribly yellow. So I'll uh, go welcome to else. my Dreamcast. That has gone yellow, isn't it? I think. Fine, yeah. There's actually there's a special mix that you can create to apply to it, and it's it's like a it's like a gel, and you just let it sit on it, and it sucks all that yellow right out of it. Awesome. Yeah, and that's the kind of stuff I do. Is I I have the systems that I've always had, and the games that I've always had, and I care for them, and I preserve them, and I and I make sure that I can continue to enjoy them. It is. Uh, real hardcore collectors of all this stuff. You know, there's people out there with huge collections of of games and um, consoles of all varieties. But is that enough? I mean, yes. I mean, I would like to think there's at least one version of every game out there that has been produced as hardware rather than actually just software. We we'll get on to that later. Um, and that almost everything out there has been collected. I mean, is that enough? I mean. Those collections are going to be kicking around. You see this so many times. One person sells their stuff on eBay. It, it appears to another one. But there's there's so many problems, which I hope you, you're going to try to touch on with uh, the way that hardware deteriorates over a long period of time. But sure. if you if you even took that out of consideration, is it really enough just to think that there's one game out there that they haven't all been destroyed? No, and that's that's just it. It's uh, no one ever knows that. We'll never know that. We can assume that, but who who really knows? Um, you know, let, let me ask you this. How do we know for a fact that, uh, to call an example, uh, that, that game Switch? Mm. How do we know that there's, um, the, the tiny registration card that manufacturers put inside of their games to, so that you can mail it in and be entered into their monthly drawing they do for a free game that no one ever wins? How do we know that the card that came with that game exists still? We don't. Unless you have one, then we know. <laughs> That, like that card might be lost forever. Does does is there not some sort of like I'd I'd, I'd love to think that the government have some sort of nationalized database that they know you know certain stuff is this, but you know is there not some sort of fan made organization which can basically catalog what actually still is this out there? Well, there there is. Uh, there's a website called K, uh, well it's called it's abbreviation of is uh, Klove Klove.com K L O K L O V. I don't know why I had such a hard time spelling that. Uh, the killer list of video games, and it started originally as an arcade preservation project, or an arcade documentation project, let me reiterate. Um, and it has since kind of changed into a, who has this, do we know that one of these exists, what is the rarity of this item? And they're actually branching into now, um, uh, Caleb is branching into consoles as well. So they're moving away from just, from they started originally as pinball slash arcade games, uh, video games. To now they're going to be including his consoles as well. And they keep a list and they have members and they poll their members who has this game. Does anybody in our list have this game? And someone replies, I have yeah. it. What's the condition of it? It's, it's community driven. Uh, it, it, it is an organization of the fact that it's, it's crowdsourced. Um, but it's not, there's not really a governing body that's going to make sure that these games continue to be preserved. Do you know what I mean? Um, Alex, am I right or, or wrong with this? Isn't there some sort of governing body that actually looks at, um, film releases that have come out over the many years and there's some sort of preservation of that of actually keeping celluloid in very low temperature we saw that in um, that sh- uh, that documentary about uh, what would happen if humans disappeared it was called yeah. after, uh, uh, Life After People um, yeah in, in America it's, it uh, keeps every single film that was ever made or like yeah. uh, I could be confusing yeah. with the no, they, they exist yeah it's the Film, film Preservation Society mm. There um, is they, a game preservation society of some kind. In uh, Robert Ashley was uh, interviewing the uh, guy on um, a life that well wasted, and um, yeah, he was uh, at one of the universities and he was talking about uh, how they were preserving MMOs and they were you know sure. making uh, like a database of every single like old vintage game that had ever been created or something along those lines. But uh, 
Yeah, the, uh, you've actually you, you've steered me to that show actually. Last time we spoke, it's good stuff. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, they, they are out there, but I'm, not, I'm just not sure they're as prolific as the ones who are out well, of the films. Well, then, I mean, what is the in- inherent risk if if we don't have these preservation societies and whatnot? What is the inherent risk of actual hardware itself in, and its deterioration? Because we know it does deteriorate. I mean, Christ, even DVDs had a, uh, the early version of the DVDs were terribly pressed and they were deteriorating. I've actually got a couple that don't even run now. So I mean, the in- inherent risk of actually um, snares games, you know, way back when type of games, you know, what actually can happen to these things? They they can just simply stop working. I've I've uh, lost considerable portions of my Sega Saturn library to uh, to deterioration. Um, Sega, as a as a cost cutting measure, um, did not put a protective layer on the top of the discs where the actual printing is because underneath that label, uh, is usually where the actual information is stored on the on the reflective nickel surface, the plastic disc is just what it's sitting on top of the delivery method. Uh, but Sega did not place a protective layer on top of it, and there are, and you know, and there's many people that are like, no, that never happened to me. I could show you examples where if you mm-hmm. hold the disc up to light, you can see holes through it where the it has just flaked off. And in right. early audio CDs are like this as well. It it happens. Um, I certainly take excellent care of my games. Um, I mean, as best as best as I have available to me as as far as methodology, it happens. There's and a lot of it comes from the fact that when these things were designed, um, no one ever thought we'd be preserving them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, they were just designed so, as, as little things in people's bedrooms. Sure. games. Yeah. I mean, do you think if you went back to, if you went back to, uh, you know, the, the original arcade where Space Invaders was launched, and he's like, you know, someday that game's going to be a classic. Mm-hmm. They're not going to believe you. It's, it's a video game. It's, it's a throwaway item. And that's, and that's where the problem lies is that there's, we can't stop it. All we can do is try to minimize it, uh, and but there's there's no stopping it. It's like anything else. Uh, you know, time time marches on. It happens. Everything is evolving. Everything is falling apart, and everything oh, comes back to Fight Club. Yeah, yes, I know. It's. I would be remiss not to mention Kropotkin. He mentioned he uh, put a little thing underneath the post on this episode saying his computer games that suffer the most problems. Amiga and Atari ST games are on floppy disks, most of which have a lifespan of ten years or so. After that, they start to degrade. So yeah, exactly what we just said. Older eight-bit machines also suffer quite badly. As the games are either on uh, five and a quarter floppy disks or even worse cassette tapes. Such media are very fragile and far from being immune to the ravages of time. How the hell do you preserve a cassette tape, because, I mean, seriously. You're going to laugh. Yeah, it's, it's analog media. This is exactly what you were going to say, Tony, that every time you listen to it, it gets worse, right? Yeah, yeah every time, every time you... I run a cassette tape. Yeah, I, I lost one or two Amstrad games because I had played them so much, eventually the cassette tape would just, like, yeah. fail to load a section. It stretches out, and then it just it ceases working. Yeah. Um, any magnetic media is like that. And there's, again, we can attempt to minimize, we can't stop. Yeah, you'd have I to pretty so. much agree never to play this thing, even if you had a pristine copy of. Uh, no, that's not. No, that's that's not uh, that is not true either. Um, <laughs> you'd still have no, to play it just to if, uh, listen. If you had a say, you had a floppy disk, mm-hmm. and it, it was perfectly preserved, but um, it was for some reason a magnet found its way near it, or a electromagnetic burst as small as it is mm-hmm. hit uh, somehow affected it. And some, and the data was lost. You, it could be shrink wrapped and still not work. Mm. Things like that happen, and that's just that's the inherent 
problem with magnetic media. Well, I certainly know from my own experience with, with you know collecting older machineries. I mean, I, I've had nothing but problems with my um, NES, where you know it's got that classic blinking light scenario where mm. it, it doesn't you know it just doesn't want to read the cartridge and you have to put it in five or six times. But on top of that, I know all the cartridge based machines I've got my NES is a pain. Really, you have to keep the the actual pins really really clean before that thing even picks up. Actually, um, in, your, in that case, it's not it's not a matter of cleanliness. I can tell you exactly what's wrong with your NES if you'd like. Yeah, go for it. There's it's a, a common problem. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very common problem. It's a it's a 72 pin connector inside of there. It's mm-hmm. a it's a zip socket is what they refer to it as. Mm-hmm. When you put the game in and then press down, what happens is is that it pushes down on the pins and makes contact. Mm-hmm. Uh, that mechanism it's a bad design. The the uh, the Japanese uh, Famicom was a top loading unit, so they were never affected by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with that lever action, it eventually wears out, and you can still actively buy replacement 72 pin connectors and it'll work red as rain as soon as you replace it ah that's alright well, so if you know someone who actually knows that the NES then all is not lost if you've got a blinking light I was picturing a day when 10-20 years time the NES like finding a functioning one was almost impossible it yeah, it reminded me of there was this episode of Cowboy but, Bebop but, where they were desperate to find a VHS recorder, and eventually well they found one, and it was a Betamax, and it didn't. The NES is a unique. Needed. The NES is a unique case. Many of the patents on the NES have expired, so companies are free to build clone machines. Now. Yes, I was going to mention clone machines in a bit. Tony, you got something to say? Sorry. Well, no, I mean actually that that answers my question. I mean, we can talk about games, and no doubt we will move on to how we can actually use you know storm databases and what and whatnot in a, in a minute, but. Hardware itself, I mean, if you want to just do it purely by hardware, I mean, there, there is always going to be a, a case, surely, at some point where, you know, you're going to have that NES and there's not going to be any way to, to keep it maintained because, you know, mm-hmm. it'll become fewer and fewer. No, but then you're saying you can actually clone them with, uh, you know, a PC typing. But it's not, it's, but again, you're, it, you're no, cloning. It's literal cloning. It's, 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 you're not, you're not, no, no, yeah, it's literal hardware. It's NES <laughs> on a chip. Um, but, but that's, that's preservation of software. It's not preservation of hardware. Um, it'd be the same thing as if, you know, you had a kit car that, that very closely resembled, uh, an old Corvette, you know, it's not a Corvette. It looks like one. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. facsimile, but it is not a Corvette. So highly compatible. Right. Hi. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's, and no, and Kropotkin, he's, he raises a great point. I mean, it's, it, it sucks. It's a problem we all know is there. There's, there's blessed little we can do to stop it. The ravages of time, you know, we all get older. We all get wrinkler. Right. Okay, slightly different angle on this one then. Licensed games. Think of how many games come out this year, came out just this year with licenses attached to them. Movie mm-hmm. licenses, animation licenses, comic books, just oh, the man. established literary characters. Dante's Inferno is technically a license. Um, True. And they're, they're like a one-time deal and they come out and then if you're very lucky, you'll get a sequel at a later date, which will basically keep the license alive. Yep. But you, you like an, a, an old movie game, you're never going to see that again, because no one's going to pay the license to re-release that on some sort of virtual console. But that, that exists already. I mean, look at the stuff that we don't get from Japan. I mean, there's, there's a ton of fighting games just because the licensing characters over there is somewhat different than the licensing characters are in yeah, Europe and America. So yeah. stuff, it, it even exists today, but yeah, in the future, I mean, GoldenEye perfect example that they, you know, through all the might of Microsoft, Nintendo, and I believe it's Activision that uh, owns the right, as well as which, you know, MGM Studios, they have some sort of a uh, deal with that. They, they couldn't get out on Xbox Live. It was just too complex to even get that. And that's a game that's easily accessible mm. to big companies. So, ah, uh, 
But because of that, you get things like True Lies on the Genesis. If I wanted to play that right now, there's only one way, well, there's two ways I could do it. I could jump on eBay and I could look for a cartridge, which is going to be, I'm going to do that while we're talking, uh, or I could enter the shady world of emulation. Now, before we carry on, we are in no way endorsing emulation, but come on, no, 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 wait a minute, now wait a minute, now wait. Emulation is not a dirty word. Okay, but then I want just to clarify. you em- said it emulation, straight, go for it. Okay, emulation is perfectly fine. It's the ROMs. It's the game ROMs themselves. Mm. Um, you know, and even when people say, I have the original cartridge, I have the original board, I'm entitled to be able to play it, that's a, even a gray area. Mm. Um, it's so, But emulation itself is 100% perfectly legal. Okay, that is fine. But the ROMs themselves are, I think they get through a loophole in that they're basically keeping the document of that game, which in itself is not illegal. And the playing of that game is like a way to test that that document works. It's just a byproduct is you get to play that game. Right. I'm I'm in agreement. I don't think emulation is the dirty word. It's all the legal ramifications around that surround that is, you know, obviously obviously companies want to protect their intellectual properties, whether whether that's due to us trying to keep them alive or not. But um, how important really is it to the entire process of of keeping these games alive? I mean, they're they're not. Let's face it, emulations quite often aren't the most perfect way to play a game because quite often you know the controls don't map. They're a bit glitchy sometimes. CPUs don't uh, particularly work with certain emulations. So, touch on that a bit. Well, emulate, emulators are the most important aspect, um, in both both in a soft. In a software and a, from a hardware standpoint as well, because what emulators really are when you get down to it, it is a it is a it is a do- documentation, as you said, Alex. It's a documentation of the hardware. The happy side effect is is that it just happens to work in most cases. So they're extremely important. So we we will know exactly what happened when this piece of code ran on this processor. We know what happened. We know. Here's let me throw this metaphysical one out there. Okay, think of it in a hundred years time. Okay, one hundred years. If we didn't have any emulation, any preservation, who would know what the sound chip in an Atari uh, 2600 sounded like? Nobody. It would be a forgotten sound. It would be like uh, the roar of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. We'd have to guess. We have no idea. But this also extends to uh, arcade boards as well, because it's it's easy to go buy an old cartridge or possibly an old disc on eBay. But it is... Wait, uh, hands up everyone out there who has a jammer unit in their home and uh, is, you know, regularly buys arcade boards at a hundred bucks a pop, which, by the way, do not benefit anyone else apart, apart from the private collector they just bought them from. Anyone holding really their hands waiting. up? I was going to say, are you really waiting for a raise of hands? Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, got, I finally got to play Alien vs. Predator one time uh, using an emulator. Um, just kind of, you know, making up for the fact that my father once wrenched me off the uh, console when I still had several quarters left on it. Um, and I played it all the way through to the end. And I completely and utterly experienced that arcade game, which otherwise would have been absolutely lost. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, it's, it's funny that you mention that you mention Alien vs. Predator in particular. Uh, but just one bit, one thing Tony said was that... Um, you know, playing emulators, it's not always the best experience because they, a lot of them don't work properly, hmm. the controllers, that kind of thing. Uh, and again, it kind of comes back to the crowdsourcing idea. You'll notice a lot of the really good emulators are open source. Hmm. You'll notice a lot of the really, really great emulators are not. Um, take a piece of uh, hardware like MAME. 
or about piece an emulator like Mame, or or actually Stella is a great example. Uh, that's the Atari um, original VCS twenty six hundred emulator. It is an extremely accurate emulator. They're continually working to make sure that it is pitch perfect. They've actually gone so far recently, uh, thanks to some students, and I think it was MIT that someone will correct me, I'm sure, uh, that added their own bit of code into it, where it now properly emulates um, an a, a what is it a 12 ohm RF connection which would be how the original Atari hooked up it perfectly emulates what the picture quality on a CRT tube would be using that connector now in the emulator so and and in addition to that as far as controls and whatnot because let's all remember the original Atari we had this that joystick with the single button mm. well you can buy adapters for your PC or your Mac or any system that allow you via USB or anything else to just simply plug in that controller and use it as you're playing an actual Atari. Yeah, I have a DualShock 2 adapter. It's precisely that kind of thing. I mean, I have a I have a USB Sega Saturn controller mm. for my PC to use with the uh, with the fantastic SSF uh, Saturn emulator. Uh, and although that emulator is not perfect, it's close. Games are playable. Uh, the things that it's not emulating are things that happen behind the scenes, but there are plenty of emulators that are really good. MAME's whole striving point is perfect documentation of the hardware. Not emulation, perfect documentation. That's why a lot of people complain, well, I want to be able to play Sega Model 3 games like Jurassic Park or uh, The Lost World and uh, Daytona 2 and things like that. And they're like, but they run too slow on my computer. How come you guys don't use the 3D card? And their answer is very simple. The arcade machine didn't use your 3D card. The arcade mm. machine used its own hardware. Mm. We will and we will document the hardware, which is why right now it doesn't work all that well, because computers aren't fast enough to run that Lockheed Martin designed video card in software. someday they will be. someday they'll be perfect. Can I just? That's yeah. Go. Cool. Can I just touch on the point? I think the problem with emulation is. That <laughs> It's so linked up with how we think that piracy is, is basically stuck within the modern day world. You know, Sony have got this big thing about they don't, you know, they, they're trying to outlaw emulation of their, you know, their systems. And there was a fan, I, I can't remember where I heard it. Um, but, you know, they, I, mentioned, they, I mentioned about was it, it on, on yeah, was it you well, about the PS2? Someone, someone debunked me, like they told me, like I'm crazy, they can't, they can't stop emulation. My but answer they would was try. that. They did. Well, they, they sued uh, Kinetics, the company that made the virtual game station. It was a PlayStation emulator for the Macintosh in 1998. It was able to emulate PlayStation games on the Macintosh, so you didn't need to buy a PlayStation. Sony sued Kinetics, and uh, ultimately the judge ruled in favor of Kinetics that they did not do anything wrong. But Sony had more money, and they kept hitting them with lawsuits until the company went bankrupt and couldn't continue. But- and they did the exact same thing to the Bleem project on the Dreamcast, because we were... When they were both still shipping, we had emulation of the PlayStation console on the Sega Dreamcast. I don't want to get too far into the kind of legal ramifications of, of all this, but do you think there there is a time period where emulation becomes a viable way of keeping something alive, a game alive? Uh, and do you think that you know someone emulating the PS3 stuff and them saying, well, it's for documentation pe- uh, purposes now? Is the right way to go about it, or should there be like you know, almost the way that literature and, and films and, and books, you know, it, it, there's a time period where that stuff becomes, was it? It's well, what do they call it? It's not open source, isn't it? 
Um, public domain is what you're I public word. domain. I hate stealing things. I hate piracy. I, I, I don't really want to be part of it. And I, mainly since my daughter was born, I kind of had to take the moral high ground on a hell of a lot of stuff, which I would otherwise have been a bit more loose about beforehand. Because I can't have her ask me in a few years' time, Daddy, how come you told me stealing was wrong and yet you're playing this? Um, however, in the case of a lot of these arcade balls that I was just talking about, there's no one left to pay. Mm. Who exactly am I supposed to pay for X Men Children of the Atom? Because the, right. the license is not currently held by anyone, and if I if I buy one on eBay, no one from the original companies is profiting from it anyway. So it kind of you know operates on this moral vacuum kind of area where it's there's I mean I could just send the people whom I could send money to who would benefit from my actually playing this game, which I used to own by the way on the uh, <laughs> the Saturn. D- you know, I, I could send them money, but they don't even exist anymore as a company. Okay, well, let, let me rephrase my question then. You, talking about the future of preservation of, of games, should it be down to, like, a company? I mean, I just picked Sony out of how. I mean, should it be down to Sony at this point, any of their first-party games, that they, they have their own version of the emulation stuff kept, and eventually, through however many years, it comes out of public domain? Of course, it's not going to happen for every single company because, I mean, let's look at how many companies have gone within the last two years with the, with the economic downturn. Um, so, when, what is the future? What is, you know, where, I mean, obviously emulation is playing a huge part now because it, it seems to be relatively easy to do through every game generation that has passed. And as PCs got more and more powerful, you know, and we can run more and more powerful emulations of stuff. But what is the future? Is it seriously just down to emulations or is it down to these continued support of game collectors just to have these massive Laurie Reserve titles? Well, well, I, I think it's gonna be, I think it's gonna be a bit of both. And just to go back really quick to the, uh, what you were saying as far as, um, there's no one left to pay. I've always been a firm believer in the fact that, um, if something is still readily available for you to purchase, that is what you should do. I was just about to say regarding the PlayStation 3, but I couldn't get a bloody word in edgewise. Well, listen, guys, the it's a bit of a, it's the PS3 is currently selling right now. You can't operate on any moral ground and say, oh, yeah, I'm just doc- documenting this for, for later. No, it, 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 the PS3 is going to be all right for the time being. You don't need to document it yet. If mm. Sony can miss out any money, I'm actually kind of with them on this in, in this point. But it, it's it's the companies that just aren't there anymore, which you know kind of is a more interesting place for me. Well, it's a bit of it's a bit of a double edged sword, though, isn't it? Because um, if we were to wait 20 years, because right now we have things like intellectual properties, patents, that kinds of things mm. that are applying uh, to say like the cell processor. You know, it's not necessarily someone can't necessarily emulate the cell processor because then you would be in violation of their IP. Because you were technically stealing company secrets at that point. Um, but let's say in 20 years when no one cares, when the cell processor is such a miserably slow uh, thing, we all laugh at it and wonder how we possibly played games on it. Um, it's a double-edged sword because that's at the point where if we look back at like things like the, uh, you know, the NES, where we're documenting, we're saying, okay, how did it do this? How did it do that? Let's do this. Let's write this software. But wouldn't now really be the time to start documenting for future use of an emulator because now we have the engineers that help build it we can ask them questions we can reference their notes to find out exactly um, what needs to happen when this interrupt gets called on now is the time to strike as far as the documentation for future emulator use Hmm. but legally and morally it wouldn't be it wouldn't be proper to implement until at a later date I don't think Sony wants it out there basically essentially So, taking all the ramifications of, you know, 
taking PlayStation 3 hardware or 360 hardware and, and emulating that. And it's a mindful of stuff. But seriously, who does this actually fall down to? Is it the game companies to, to keep this stuff alive? Is it down to the hobbyists like ourselves to keep it alive? I mean, that, what what is the future of this? The, you know, and that's and who knows. Uh, obviously, emulation is becoming very important to companies. Um, I mean, Nintendo has an entire service around it, the Virtual Console. That's really what it is. It's just a collection of emulators that they've they've either licensed or wrote themselves. Interjection, uh, just slightly. If it weren't for um, Nintendo doing that and licensing it properly, um, all of people's old Zelda saves would eventually degrade and become nothing due to the battery backup. So it's, it's kind of key that Nintendo do take charge of this one on, on their right. part. It kind of comes down to this. And this is why emulation, you know, it, it's not wrong because Nintendo does it now. You know, granted it's their hardware, <laughs> even though really, well, yeah. really legally speaking, they're emulating the NES, right? Yeah, but they own it. So no, many of the patents expired. They no longer own it. You know. Okay. So now they're public domain. But so who's going to sue them? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know. Well, well, there's no one to sue because now everybody owns them. Everybody can do anything they want with the with those patents. Uh. And I, I, I'd love to say that the companies are going to do it, but I, there's many I'm sure they're not going to, you know, and maybe they don't care. These these companies are in the business of uh, of profit, like every every business is, you know. I mean, do, do they feel the same nostalgic value attached to them? Who knows, you know? It, it's proven to become a money making uh, part of it, so that may entice entice the corporations to to pony up a bit and start taking charge of emulation. But but it's I don't think it's any it falls on anyone's shoulders. I'd love it to fall on the company's shoulders, but then. Also, by that regard, you know, would we get the care? Access to it. How, well, how do you get access to it at that point as well? If they're just going to say, well, we do have a hard copy of it you know, in our database, but we're not going to share it with you guys. Well, you buy it. You pony up for it. There is one genre of game which, without fans, and I mean diehard fans who are also very computer savvy, would, in, on, in many cases, be, you know, leave games absolutely dead in the water. And that is MMORPGs. Because once the servers go down on dead ones, and let's face it, all of them are going to end up dead apart from WoW. Um, even that, I mean, one day the servers will shut. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no, no it's, it's perfectly fine. Someday it will end. Yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm, I would imagine that um, WoW has enough of a following that it will last as long as the internet. As as crazy as that sounds, <laughs> that that I think society will crumble before WoW does. Um. Yeah, basically, Tabula Rossa, which came out, uh, which died uh, maybe maybe a year ago, maybe slightly less, um, yeah. is is that being kept alive on any servers? I know that some, you know, I know that uh, Pla- um, Fantasy Star Online is being kept alive, the Dreams of version on the PC servers. Um, but I mean, the, the Matrix, which just recently died. I mean, th- th- do these things then enter some sort of weird nebulous? You know, you can do what you want with them, or do people, the license holders still jealously guard them, or what? Has well, it? Sega Sega tried to shut down the Fantasy Star server stuff. Why? Because they own the intellectual property. And I, I know I'm 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 on your side of the argument on this. Why? What do you care? You shut it down because it wasn't profitable. Mm-hmm. Can't we just have it for? Obviously, you can't sell it. Can you give it to us for free? Well, I'm, I would imagine it's something along the lines of if you don't, if if you Dreamcast fanatics like you, Tim, are playing this online with your buddies, um, then you won't be buying our new Fantasy Star Online. Essentially, the same game but on the Wii or whatever. Well, that's that's a ridiculous notion. That's like saying because you're watching Die Hard One on DVD, you're not going to go watch Die Hard Four in the theaters. The very smart answer. 
to that particular Die Hard conundrum. Don't bother seeing Die Hard 4. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it, it is... It still does hold merit, though, ultimately, as an argument. You know, so we'll, essentially, if we're, we're going to be reflogging you this game at some later date, then there's no way in hell we're going to let you play the old version. Well, I suppose. I mean, it, it comes, and, that's, and that is the eternal conundrum of preservation. I mean, you don't have... Uh, studios suing movie theaters when they have a, uh, you know, if they have like a, a Cary Revival. Grant revival, you know, they aren't suing him saying, now wait a minute, now wait a minute, that movie was going to come out on DVD in a few months, we were going to do, you know, Singing in the Rain Part 2, we were going to make that, and it was going to be called Singing in the Rain Part 2 with a Vengeance, and uh, you can't watch the original theaters because we're going to sell it to you again. But, okay, right, picture... On a time scale, 100 years from now, if Final Fantasy XII has been preserved and you've got the disc or you've got the emulation of that game, you can pop it into your whatever will emulate PS2 and people will be like, you mean it's on hard disc? That's like a baby's toy. But you'll be able to walk around the architecture of that game and see what that game was. How are we to know what Tabula Rasa looked like or felt like unless somebody preserves it? We'll have what? We'll have YouTube videos, and that'll be Precisely. it. Precisely. That is exactly it. We. That's why preservation needs to kick in for this kinds of these kinds of things. I think that is absolutely. I think basically, when a um, company hangs up its uh, uh, its hat on on, on a, a MMO, if they have no intention of you know re putting the license out there, they should open source that shit and basically go right. It's up to the fans. If you guys want to put this on your servers, go for it. If you want to try and make money on of it, try. We couldn't, but you might be able to. But it is yours now. I think it is their responsibility because they made this game, and if they love that game, and they better love that game, they need to give it to someone who cares about it, about it just as much as they do. And and just just for the sake of the of the fans listening to the show, we we have now transitioned the conversation. This this argument is uh, we've transitioned from hardware uh, mm. preservation. We are strictly in the software preservation category now. Mm. There's a, there's <laughs> a huge there's a world there of was a shift at some point. I, I think we're all sensible enough to know eventually hardware there, there's we'll not it. much chance that you know, a lot of this hardware that we see even today is going to be around in a hundred. I mean, just look at some of the early early consoles out there. I mean, they're barely functioning. Hmm. Although, you know, much Actually, the older, con- older older consoles uh, tend to work. I mean, simple. <laughs> how, many, how many how many NES systems did you go through as a kid? Zero. I never had one, unfortunately. I wish well, I had one. Right now. <laughs> Most people had one, you know. Or, or how many Super Nintendos did you have to buy when they was out? When they was out? Uh, how many Xbox 360s has the average household gone through? Yeah. If anything, <laughs> the hardware is 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 more reliable because largely because of simpler construction. In the case of the Xbox 360, it's not a fair comparison because that was poor engineering, um, and. But they were simpler. There was less things to really go wrong. Hmm. And finally, I suppose this is a, the, you know the way to sort of round it off. Video game collectors and museums and the future of these. I mean, I would imagine people who actually go out and buy every single Dreamcast game that has ever been produced and keep mm-hmm. it mint on their shelf are doing it with some 
sort of somewhere in the back of their mind thinking, in the future, this will pass on to my children and my children's children. They'll be able to play a Dreamcast and they'll know what Half-Life Blue Shift was like in the Dreamcast version. And it's it's important that that happens. They're they're praying that their relations or the future generations will care about this thing as much as they do. Either that or, or I don't know how collectors' minds work. I, I I know this. If I start collecting something, I can't just go. Oh, I'll just get one or two of these things. I will have to go fucking all out on that. So I am terrified of getting into game collecting. But it depends on what kind of game collecting you want to get into. I mean, it, it as I said, my friend Adam has made it his personal mission. Uh, he wants everything that he wants. I mean, if if it's out there and he it's a rare game, he wants it. We want it. And he's you know he preserves it. He takes excellent care of it, and it's you know he's he's a good curator of that item. I, on the other hand, I don't have that affliction. Thankfully, my my wallet thanks me every single time when I think about it. Um, but I, I I have that same kind of fanatical devotion to the items I already have. Um. And, and it, let me pose this one to you. If you think for a second that Sega doesn't have one of every game ever made for the Dreamcast, <laughs> you are mistaken. Yeah. Because they do. They showed photos that they have every single Dreamcast game ever made on file at Sega headquarters. Oh, I know this is not going to affect you much because it's you don't have a PS3, but uh, what do you think of the news that there's rumors of uh, Dreamcast collections coming out on the PS3 uh, on the PSN? I hardly think it's rumors at this point, isn't it? Yeah. That was pretty much a definitely document. Okay. It's not really. It's not really a bombshell. I mean, we've had. I mean, we've already had. It's, okay, think of it like this. Oh, you know, we've already had that. We've had Soul Calibur released on Xbox Live Arcade. We've had Virtual on. Uh, I'm going to butcher this. It's like Oratorio Tenegrum or however you say mm-hmm. it. How uh, dare both, you get that wrong? <laughs> right. Both games I own on the Dreamcast, but both games have come out for the Xbox 360 via Crazy Xbox Taxi Arcade. was on PS2, which you could technically play if you had a back compact PS3. Technically speaking, yeah. So, um, but Sega Bass just how are they going to do that? <laughs> could, you, could you technically do it with the um, six axis? Sure, there was a motion sensor inside of the fishing rod controller. I have one. It's pretty fun. Yeah. But uh, Samba de Amigo. I mean, ultimately, we've seen Dreamcast games come back. Controls. Um, <laughs> in you know the the Wii version of Samba de Amigo, um, and Dreamcast games have, have been around for for many many years. I just I really like the fact that the the the, the Nintendo stretched beyond the boundaries of Nintendo. And, and when I was a kid in the playground, the idea that Nintendo would be publishing the Sega games on their uh, their Wii would have been ludicrous because I was in the Sega camp, and uh, you know I wasn't totally against Nintendo. I kind of wanted one, but it was very much a sort of us versus them thing. But they've oh, also yeah. embraced the Turbo Graphics. That you know, there's there's Atari games coming out on there, and they've kind of there's a large. Number, number of, 64 is a huge one on the Wii. I would it's genuinely huge. like to see every significant console have some sort of back catalogue republished for current generations because the kids. They, you know, if, they, if you get them at an age of that when they're young enough not to have been spoiled by the you know, HD graphics, they don't care. They love the fact that these mm-hmm. games are playable. And I think ultimately, it, if we're, we're going to round this off properly, think of the children. Because ultimately, <laughs> we've got to get them interested in old video games. We've got to keep them interested, and that basically comes from, from exposure to them. So ultimately, it's, it doesn't matter if they're sitting rotting away in, the, in this sort of you know, care, carefully preserved, airtight you know, vacuum chamber where there's this one tiny little ray of sunlight that's slowly destroying everything, or a magnet drops in the middle of the floor. I don't know. But whatever attempts are doing for, going for preservation, it's not for us. We're not going to be there to see it. It's for the kids and the kids of the kids. 
So I think ultimately emulation by uh, existing console manufacturers uh, and and software publishers is absolutely key to keeping these things alive. Maybe we need a new word for emulation that doesn't it it isn't so preservation. It should just be preservation. You know, no. If you deserve, if you if you talk to people like me, it is not. We don't even refer to it as emulation. It is preservation. Um, and and just you know to round off my portion of it here. Um, Nintendo's work with a virtual console is absolutely fantastic because the TurboGrafx-16 is a prime example. Um, how many people had never even heard of that system and now have access to the library of it? Yeah, bonks you know? adventure. Precisely, and we're getting a sequel to that now on Xbox Live Arcade. It's so popular. And uh, the, it's, it's, it's created a funny phenomenon is that all of a sudden everybody is like, oh, yeah, the TurboGrafx, boy, I loved mine when I was younger. And have you stopped to consider... That if every single person that claims, oh yeah, Turbo Graphics, or oh yeah, Sega Saturn, I had, I loved playing Panzer Dragoon Saga when I was younger. If every person that claims they loved those games and had that game when it came out truly did have that game, we wouldn't have the shortage of them that we have now. Yeah. Because the fact of the matter is, those games didn't sell. They weren't popular. That's why they're so hard to come by. That's why preservation is needed. And I think it's important that uh, they emulate at some point. Licensing notwithstanding, E.T. Yeah, you never know. You can bury I'll that fucker, it. but it's it's yeah. notorious now. And because they buried so many, it's it's ever so slightly rarer. So they, they need to bring that back and show the kids. E- even if Spielberg is ashamed of it. And, and now we're going to get into the Star Wars holiday special territory, because that thing has to come out as well at some point. Well, let me, let me tell you about a company that's owned... They've, they've owned the idea of preservation, and they understand it, and they get it oh, Yeah. in television. Long ago, they caught on. They got an emulator, the Intellivision Lives emulator. They got that. They got back all of their games, okay? And they started releasing emulators for every single system on the planet. And you can now buy them, and they're everywhere, and they own it. You can go to their website, you can go to IntellivisionLives.com, and they talk about the system and, and the preservation of it and, and making it so that future generations can continue to enjoy these games. They own it. They understand it. They have the perception of it. They totally get it. They're one of the few companies that does. That sounds kind of like LucasArts with the ScumVM uh, site, where you can actually play all the old um, Scum games. That's not uh, LucasArts, though. Oh, who's that? Scum, ScumVM was, is an open-source project. Okay. Is anyone making any money from those games? No, no. The games, actually, Lucas uh, chases people around the internet trying to get them to stop downloading those games. The emulator itself is not illegal. There's a couple of companies that have released games into the public domain, um, Beneath the Steel Sky. Um, there's a couple of titles for, for Scum. Um, there's a lot of titles that have been released in the public domain anyway for preservation. Mm. It's, it's really what it's all about. And it's funny you say, you know, for the kids, and it's true. You know, we are we are the generation that was... Uh, was raised with the computer always existing mm-hmm. and uh, it's the same equivalent of a, of a dad sitting around and listening to old you know Pat Boone records with his son trying to make him understand you know this is when music was better and we, we can kind of take the same kind of stance I wish you said Beatles and not Pat Boone I want to go even yeah. older you know okay so right I think that'll do about forever emulation anything else Tony no other than you know what? Even though this emulation stuff sits out there, I still enjoy actually playing on the hardware. Nothing quite matches playing on the proper device that was meant to be uh, there mm-hmm. in the first place. So, uh, although I, I understand it's going to go, but uh, you know, 
emulation it's certainly yeah it's some I think that is the future so instead of calling it emulation I'm just going to refer to it as preservation as sad as it is that uh, the hardware is degrading the hardware can be recloned you could make a we company can, can sit down and well, 20 years from now a company could sit down and go right let's make uh, you know a 100,000 brand new Atari 2600s see what happens but let's let, here's, a, here's a PS to that to that and you feel free to cut this if you'd like yeah sure um there is hardware that cannot be. There's, we can emulate the games, but we can't emulate the hardware. And perfect examples of that are vector-based monitors. Tempest in the arcade, um, or the Vectrex system. We can emulate those. We can play the games just fine, but we cannot emulate that vector monitor. That that buzzing sound, that glow, the after image, uh, that stuff is lost to us because vector monitors don't exist anymore. And, and we'll never get them back. We can do close approximations, but we will never see that. Again, that's sad. What way to bring us down? <laughs> I just, and, and I just—that's—that's—that that's, is the lot of a game preservationist. It's like anything else. It's watching the past erode to make way for the future. Well, okay. On that note, thank you very much, Commander Tim. You have been absolutely <laughs> indispensable. <laughs> That's—I I appreciate you using a word like that. To describe me, thank you, and have me, and I'm, 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 I'd love to talk about this stuff with anybody. If anybody wants to, uh, you know, not on necessarily in this show, if anyone wants to just catch up with me and pick my brain about it, CommanderTim.com, go there. It's got links to everything, or GameHounds.net, and you can email me, Tim at CommanderTim.com. Best way to reach me if you just want to yak about stuff, or I'm always up for it. Just let me know. Okay, we'll be back with news of a new project and the competition after this. a podcast that's informational. Do you know we have boobs and play video games? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I'm looking at them right now. Hey, check those out. Relevant. Why, why do you have that blanket and wear your pants? Focused. As the, uh... Yar! And now I'm deaf. Filled with highbrow humor. I think that might be my stripper name, Raspberry <laughs> And very smart. Hi, we're the dumb girls on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Then you will love some other podcast. Join Elaine and Leah every Friday by visiting PlatformNation.com, SomeOtherCastle.com, or subscribing on iTunes. But remember, this podcast is rated M for Mature. Okay, the project. This is Alex's big project for the next year. I've been thinking about some sort of project I could do to really push me forwards, and I've also been thinking about my pile of shame, and I've also been thinking about Ratso Albion. <laughs> And his uh, gigantic pile of shame, which he has managed to condense down. And I've been thinking, what could I do sort of like that that would also motivate me forward? So, here's the project. 50 weeks, 50 games. Pretty much self-explanatory. I'm going to complete a game, roughly one a week. You know, maybe more, maybe less, but that'll allow me to do the bigger games and the smaller games um, for the next year, essentially. I, I'm, my, my starting date is today. I'm going to start with the next game that I review, and it's basically Halo 3 ODST, which is the last game I completed, does not count, but that will be the last game before I start this one. So every time I I, uh, finish a game to completion and actually get the credits rolling, I will photograph myself going, eh, thumbs up, next to it, 
stick it up on the forums because basically I'm going to keep close contact with, uh, with, with our community on this one and then do an article about it. So basically you can get 50 reviews as well. This is a chance for me to, to properly play all the new games that we get uh, to review for you guys and just do it properly and thoroughly as opposed to sort of, well, I played this for a while, but I had other stuff to do and I wanted to play a bit of Rock Band. It allows me to really concentrate on those. It allows me to dredge up the old games I sort of half got halfway through and just finish them. And it allows me to go and get those games which I've never played, like Super Metroid, and play them. And this basically is also where you guys come in, because you guys can suggest games, which if I haven't played them, I really should. Now, obviously, the list is going to be huge, and it's going to be way more than 50. But if I focus on just 50, that means I'm not going to end up with my plate too full. And this could carry on. I could end up going, you know, beating this 50 within the 50-week period and, and then extending the bet. But, okay. So, do you guys want to make a wager with me that I can't do this? That way it'll I'm, spice it up a bit? I'm just going to keep feeding you uh, RPGs week in, week out. You fucker. <laughs> I've got, I can think of... I, I can think of games. Sure. Yeah. Let me just tell you right now. The, um, one of the games on my, my sort of current list is Oblivion. So that's going to take a few weeks. You on might itself. finally get around to finishing Final Fantasy XII. Yeah, that's, that's on the list as well. Mm-hmm. The Darkness, I've never, I'm, I've, I'm about halfway through. But, my only thing I would say to you is don't. I know it's it's a, actually it's a really good idea, um, but don't force yourself just to complete games. So, you know, sometimes we we do this as like oh, I just need to get something done for the show, mm. uh, and it actually would actually hamper your enjoyment of that title just because you've got a deadline to actually do it. So be well, careful that's why on it's, like it's, saying it's I have to do this once a week, maybe mm. fifty by the end of the year. That way you give yourself a bit of uh, leeway than saying right this week it's it's Friday. It's now you know. 10 o'clock at night and I need to put the rest of this time into beating this game see what I'm so. going to do is if I do take a month to finish an RPG and I've got other stuff on the go as well I'm going to jump on, uh, on uh, one day and just finish four scrolling beat-em-ups on main <laughs> in one day go there you go four weeks in one go brilliant now, uh, we're, now we're up to date uh, but I'll also write about each one in detail so that so means that you guys get some output from me and I get to really experience a hell of a lot of games, including, of course, Shadow of the Colossus, God of War 2, Eco, all the classics that I have never really had massive reason, aside from the fact that everyone tells me to. I've got one, uh, Super Mario Galaxy. That's on my list too, Tony, you may be pleased to know. Good. I'm boring your Wii again. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> At least it'll get played. Uh, sure, sure alike. <laughs> okay, so yeah, that's my project. 50 games, 50 weeks, we shall see. Oh, do you guys want to bet me that I can't? No, I, I, the funny thing is I probably complete about 40 games a year without even setting myself a target, so right. I'm cool with that. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, on the other hand, I, I am much like you, uh, Alex, in the fact that I, I, modern day games, I complete so little of them. Mm. Um, ever since the PlayStation, I just, I don't play through games. I, I kind of peter out, which is why I don't buy a lot of modern ones. Mm. So. Just think I, of I, the, um, the, the photograph at the end, Tony, as the thousand point achievement score. For me. Yeah, well, now you're going to get into a, convers- uh, a conversation of how do you complete the game? What do you call completion? Is it just... End credits. Yeah. There's, well, there's certain games you can't... And basically, there are some them, games that will be on this list where it'll be slightly outside the parameters, and we can have those debates on the forums if you want, but... Uh, no, no, wait. It's, it's wait. pretty obvious when you've finished a game most of the time. There is a stipulation we should clarify now. Uh-huh. Is he allowed to use walkthroughs? Oh, yeah, no, I've yes. got to. In some cases, <laughs> if I am stuck, you are asking me to go through pain and suffering otherwise. There's, there's no shame occasionally returning to a walkthrough, especially... I'm not going to do it by rope, because I want to experience it. 
because back back in the nineteen you know eighties and early nineties we didn't have uh, bullshit. No 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 listen we didn't we you didn't did have, not have access but you did have magazines that came out every month with walkthroughs. They weren't as thorough as your average game facts walkthrough is currently. And you couldn't use like word search and stuff like that. Yep. Okay. Okay, does completing virtual tennis then just mean if you manage to get to the end of the uh, competition, then that's a completion? Uh, is there a career mode in virtual tennis? Yeah, but you you won't complete that. It'll take you forever. That's why it's not on my damn list, Tony. I'm playing that one for fun, but not for 50 <laughs> Games Project. Cool? Yep. Okay, so that's it. 50 games, 50 weeks. Let's see if I can do it. If you want to turn your daddy parts orange... Eat some Cheetos and watch some porn. Right, competition time. Tony, do you want to take this one? Yes, this is our continuation of our uh, well, our weekly update of the UK versus the USA iTunes reviews. Remember last week that we said there will be the competition and there will be a big prize to win at the end. I was as, hoping we'd be at 50 this week already. Oh, I told you that would happen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Pax Whack and, and all the other stuff and time we actually, we actually get there. we need to sweeten the deal. Well, there will be more in there. There will be some games. There will be T-shirts. There will be all sorts of stuff. There will going to be a big bundle time it gets there, which is going to cost us a fortune to send it yeah. to America. Yeah. But uh, come to the forums, you will start to see the, the photos going off of what you will actually win. But as it actually stands, so last week we had uh, nine, 20, 19 reviews in the UK. Yeah, I think it was 19 no. in the UK, 20 in the USA. No, it was 19 in the US and 20 in the UK. All right. Um, so yes, that's right. We were, we, we were winning. So who won this week then now? Well, let me just read the names. The UK, we've got Darth Cuddles, Rich JT, Rob295, Ben Duncan, can't think of a nickname. That's literally what he put. <laughs> Tori Sutton, who thinks we're hot, by the way. Steg666. And in the USA, we've got Mr. Bungo, 64 Student, Shay Dogs, Snakeman555, and Sassy Geek. So that is six to the UK and five to the USA. Six, five. So the UK wins. Oh, yes, UK. Brings us up to a grand total in the UK to 26 reviews and the US 24 reviews. So 24? We must have had one in the last... um, 23. 23. Um, um, So still plenty to play for because that's that's still roughly only halfway there. Yeah. I mean... yeah, so basically, everyone, as we said last week, we know we've, we are damn certain we have more than 50 listeners on either side of the, uh, the Atlantic, so, uh, every, everyone who hasn't ever given us a, uh, review, jump on. Everyone who already so now, has, you're still in with a chance to win this thing. It's just that you don't have to do anything, you just have to now, sit back and listen to us. Yeah, on the, on the side note as well, so we're not actually counting ratings. Ratings are important because it still gives an, an idea of yep. whether you've given it a 5, 4 or whatever, but we're counting as actually written reviews because, b- believe it a lot, most people actually view that rather than the actual ratings. Now, if we're talking other things, it's subscription numbers and stuff, but we're not going to complex a number, so we just want reviews and, of course, give a rating at the same time. I mean, if you still think we're, if you think we're terrible, do it. Why not? But you're... Yeah, you're probably not going to win the competition. Yeah, no, yeah. If, if you give us now. a one star, I'm, I'm not. I, I put this up on the forum. If, if if someone gets a one star and they turn up in the lottery, they're not getting this back because they probably <laughs> they would they'd be like, "What is this?" Because they were not listening to the show. Yeah, um, and they wouldn't respond to our emails anyway. So, so show your national pride. Actually, they, they wouldn't know that we were saying you are the winner because they wouldn't know. 
<laughs> Unless they, they give us one star and yet still listen to us every damn week. Anyway. Show your national pride. I'm, I'm very proud that the UK won this time, but I'm also equally proud that the USA had a bloody good fight to actually beat us, and they yeah. came close. It almost a draw. Um, so on top of that, so that's that. Um, our forums launched last week. And so good. Uh, thank you very much for the people who have joined. I think we're, we're closer, I think we've topped up to almost 40 members mm-hmm. uh, strong in the one week and the word's getting out there and there's been some fantastic conversation on there. Some of it really deep, some of it's... Stupid. Stupid. I mean, what would, what would happen if dinosaurs attacked? Zombie so raptors a, got brought up. Yeah, it's a good question. So if you want to answer what would happen what in that some situation. Some of the, the more serious ones that were, I mean, it was, uh, you, you put up, uh, have, or was it you who did, uh, has the internet ruined video games? No, that was actually Lefty Brown from the Maris oh, Games. That was good. And, and you, I think you did the one that was, um, c- can you appreciate a video game just as much if you weren't there in the initial launch? I yeah. think Tim can answer that one. No, I mean, I think you can. I think your viewpoint's different. Hmm. Well, Tim will write on the forum and tell me why. Yes, I- he will, because he's a member. <laughs> He is a member, but no, and honestly, to the people that have already joined, thank you very much. You're making it a fantastic place that actually I want to visit to. And as I said before on the last week's show, I don't visit forums, but this is one I'm, I'm glued to. I've uh, hardly tweeted all week because I'm so busy checking the forum. Exactly. Uh, and to the people that haven't joined yet, please, please, if you just want to continue the conversation, and this is, you know, we're not going to force you to come and do this. This isn't a, a reason you have to. But, but it's um, great. It's I think you'd probably want to. Time. If you like listening yeah. to us, then you definitely, I mean, we are on there constantly as well, so you can probably get a dialogue going. If you have something to say, here is the place to say it. I think we're probably going to put reader mail on hold for a while, because it is actually quite time-consuming on the podcast, but it, you can have a proper back and forth if we're well, on the forums. Yeah, it's, it's all to do with the time period. I mean, if we're having a continue of a good conversation like we hopefully have had this evening, and uh, the you know, the continuation of uh, talking about the games right at the end of it, you know, following up the Halo 3 in the second, mm. then, or Halo ODST mm. for Orient Slip, um, then, of course, we're, we'll, I mean, as and when we, we free up some time, reader mail will probably come back, but um, if you want to contact us and just talk to us, the forums yeah. is the place to go, which is www.thedigitalcowboys.com forward slash forums. Indeed. Right, Halo 3 ODST. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the history of this one first? Because you're kind of the bungee expert in this regard. Oh my god, a new Halo game has been released. <laughs> <laughs> another another year, another two years. Of, oh, no, another actually, is it not, no, it's another year if you count uh, Halo Wars. Well, technically, yes. Yeah, yeah. no, I'll give you that, yeah. So it's, it's on the next year. Time, well, is, is the Reach next year? Or that, Reach the, will be, yeah, 2010. Ah, that, my friends, is the sound of uh, a very, you know, delicious cow being milked. But it is being milked nonetheless. <laughs> I'm kind of worried about what people who are not Bungie might do with this franchise at later. Well, we had Assemble Studios obviously bring us Halo Wars, and I mean, to be, uh, yeah, I mean, it's now defunct, sadly. Yes, now defunct, and it was a perfectly adult game. Like I say, it, I will speak to it. Last week on the RTS debate, you know, I found it perfectly competent for me because it was fairly easy. But uh, best RTS more. you ever played? <laughs> now that was Command and Conquer way back on the uh, in the way back in the day. Oh, settlers, that's what I'm going to say. Okay. But anyway, I'm, I'm not the topic on this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> enough of that. But I mean, this this is a div- uh, you know this is a game developed by Bungie. So yeah. as, as much as you know, Halo Wars, you know, the kind of spin-off from the series, you know, it wasn't Bungie, and you know. 
Do you remember when Bungie left Microsoft not to work on Halo games? (laughs) I do. I want to know about how this actually came to be, because obviously it had a fairly short development cycle, didn't it? We we talked to Lars Bakken, and he was talking about how they had like a year to get this whole thing made. Well, basically what actually happened was they decided they were going to do this this whole release of maps over a long period of time, Mm. uh, and, you know, continued supporting Halo since 2007 all the way up to this present point. So, you know, a good two years of support for that game, which is really unprecedented quite often certainly on consoles I mean there's PC yeah, and stuff um, supportive of many they games. have the mod scene so it's kind of alright for yeah. them the, the, the companies who make the games can kind of go right there you go there's uh, Half-Life 2 go nuts yeah so and so what they decided was the final pack which we'll get on to later kind of you know which would contain the final few maps but also contain just a little segment of um, new campaign and the original idea that it was just going to be two to three hours long um, had a real short, had a small team. I think it was like 70 guys with, you know, six main guys like Joe Statham and mm. Lance Barkin. Um, some, so, so still some of the main guys from, from the team, but it was basically just to bridge the gap between oh. Halo 3 in 2007 yeah. and Halo Reach all the way over in 2010. Gotcha. So I just thought it would be a way just to, you know, give something to the fans saying thank you for supporting the game and, you know, a new game will be coming soon. Okay. Now, this being Bungie didn't kind of work out that way. They don't do things by halves, do they? They don't. If you remember, the original Halo was supposed to be an RTS, wasn't it? Yes, very much so. So, what the fuck happened there? So, I mean, if you look at all the documentaries and stuff, it, it just it, it grew and grew and grew into the point where they they decided, okay, it was going to be a full retail release rather than a download, but it was going to be a, a cut price because the content wasn't going to be in there enough. And then it grew and grew again, and they said, well, it's going to have to be released as a full price games which we're getting on to later and we'll decide whether that's a good or bad idea mm. but the way you know the way it turns out now it is halo dst and it's it's out and it bridges the gap between that and and reach and that's kind of the build-up to this game yeah okay so are we just doing this sectionally in the uh the categories i put down or do you want to add something extra to these i, I think i mean there is three distinct parts of this game obviously you have the main story mode um you have Firefight, and then you have the, the extra, well, basically yeah. Halo 3 just, multiplayer yeah. disc with new maps. And so I think if we break it down into those three segments and then uh, have a, you know, just a talk on each, then probably have some sort of understanding time we get to the end of that. Okay. Well, um, well, well this one will be a good overview of, of uh, both Firefight and a main ODST, because basically Halo 3 is a separate game. The, the multiplayer. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll talk about yep. that separately. But the, uh, the main game and, um, Firefight are very much linked. So when you talk about the graphics, the sound, the music, etc., that's all uh, far reaching on that. Um, graphics very, very similar to Halo 3. Um, considerably darker, a lot more high contrast, a lot of, you know, really dark areas which really make use of your, your stealth tactics and, and moving around the dark. Um, but also really kind of grainy and gritty. You know, don't, don't you feel it? It's, it's much more a feeling of being there and less sort of lush jungle, vin, you know, vines and environments like you'd, you'd be used to in Halo. Well, as one of the chief. well, one of the big things was that you know when we played back in New Mombasa, where this is basically all set uh, back in Halo Two, everyone really loved that section. But before you could get used to actually playing on Earth, I mean, this big hype about being on Earth, we were whisked off again to the you know, nearest Halo. Um, <laughs> There's many like, lying around the place. Yeah, we were like, but they've just got it. And so basically they said, right, we're going to take it back to... And so this story actually, it runs kind of uh, between Halo 2 and Halo 3. So there's events that happen within Halo 2 when you're actually, actually fighting there. And uh, some of the early events that happen right at the beginning of Halo 3. 
I so, think what people were most disappointed with with Halo 2 wasn't just the Arbiter, it was the fact that you were led to believe, hey, you're defending Earth, and it was going to be, hey, you yeah. get off of my planet to the, the, the uh, Covenant, and then maybe the Flood, and that you as Master Chief were like the last bastion of hope, but it was like, Earth, and then as you say, you literally whisked away, so um, yeah, it is nice to have a game that's, that's focused very much on the Earth uh, sections, although, having said that, they're all very kind of, we've, we've, we've been in places like this before, right? Um, yeah, well, let me just, I mean, the graphics, I mean, they, they are improved. I mean, ultimately what we're playing here, this is a Halo, this is basically Halo 3. I mean, they're, they're making no bones about it, it is Halo 3 ODST. By the way, everyone take uh, a shot when we say Halo. Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> be drunk. Um, so this is the, the, you know, the 2007 engine. Uh, uh, but like all good engines, it's, it's malleable for, for a number of years and they've decided that yes, you know, they can, they can get a bit more on this. And really, if you actually run it side by side against Halo 3, you, you will see there is a noticeable difference. A lot of the particle effects have got better. Um, a lot of the lighting is a hell of a lot better. And it just, it seems a hell of a lot sharper. And like you say, gritty because I think of the, the kind of where, you know, the aesthetics of where it's actually set. Mm. Um, it still has all the same problems of the Halo 3 engine. Um, the character models are an absolute disaster for modern day gaming. I mean, yes, we have a, you know, a stellar cast in there, but the facial stuff, I just, yeah, I, oh, I almost look away on occasions because the engine is, was never really designed for that. Uh, See, I remember, ca- um, who, who was the character Ron Perlman played in uh, Halo 2? The, the Admiral. Mm-hmm. He, I remember his face looking actually pretty good for the day, but the it, day. it looks terrible now. We were looking at Trisha Helfer's character, Dare, mm-hmm. and she's like the hottest Cylon in the galaxy. And that is one fuck-ugly bird in that game. But it does armor really well. So when it was Master Chief as your main protagonist, it was, well, man, he looks fantastic. But facial stuff, the engine was never designed for it, so it never looks good. But I don't want to sell the engine short on this. Before I lose all the female audiences, by the way, I really, really like Patricia Helfer as an actress. She does a fantastic, powerful role in, in multiple roles, in fact, in Battlestar Galactica. It's just that her character model is fugly. Sorry. <laughs> True. But, um, like I said, it, it's still a really, really solid-looking uh, game. And... Not to do any disjustice, some of the, the lighting they have, effects they do in this game, and we're getting into um, the actual main campaign and maybe describe where it's been put into use in, within those. But it's actually really, really stellar. It, it's better than a lot of other games where you, they're all very shiny and Gears of War-y with its, uh, with its Epic's engine, and, and this looks distinctly different, different certainly within the, uh, the hub world. So... Um, yeah, it, I think, yes, it is starting to show its old age, and I, you know, Reach obviously isn't going to be using this engine, but uh, the fact that it's, it's still got all that you know stuff you can watch back, everything you've done in it, and it can handle four-player co-op uh, and all the such, everything from Halo 3 will transfer over. So, Well, if you remember, Halo 3 wasn't violently different in its engine and its control than Halo 2, which in itself wasn't violently different from Halo 1. So we're talking about variations and, 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 and you know on Halo 1 here. I mean, it's... So I think we need we really need to describe what Halo ODST actually is and take another shot. Does anyone need the plot? I think so. Okay, uh, you oh. are you play the rookie to begin with, uh, where you get dropped in with the rest of your orbital drop shop trooper friends, and uh, then you find yourself waking up several hours after the drop, and everyone's gone missing. So you go off and find your crew one at a time, and um, you every time you get to a, a piece of um, evidence that they've been there, you flash back to a certain scene that they had something to do with, and you but play that character in a scenario. That track, I mean, you have just skimmed over this. What? But this is everything new about Halo. 
It's this got is, a hub world. Yeah, but this has never been done before. Um, I mean, a little bit of explanation is that this is a hub world. So you, you have to go to a particular, as they call them, beacons, and actually find out what happened to your teammates. And that, it's kind of like a flashback, kind of like a, almost like a replay from Virgil of the City's um, kind of <laughs> computer AI. Mm-hmm. Um, but a hub world in Halo is, is unprecedented. I mean, Halo has always been a very... Uh, and I shall put linear in the greatest of terms, you know, because the ma- I mean, Halo worlds are fairly massive and there's lots of potential from, you know, sneaking around and going from one side. But the reason this, this hub world is so different is it's a completely different pace for Halo. Halo mm. is very much about its... I mean, this is the development, you know, Bungie have said over and over again. It's about that 30, 30 seconds, seconds of fun repeated over and over and over again. So it's like, to the next 30 seconds, the next 30 seconds, by dropping you into this, this hub world, it brings everything back to a slower pace and actually says, look, you are not Master Chief. You are this orbital drop trooper. And the basic difference between him and, you know, Master Chief and, and these guys are that you you know you aren't the most powerful man in the world um you can take well damage you can take pretty a lot quicker you have stamina rather than a shield but let's face it it kind of works like a shield but don't tell anyone um and you we go back to the original halo one uh med pack scenario so you know you, if you if your stamina goes down to a certain degree then you have to pick up med packs rather than it just your shield rebuilding back up if you take cover right. but this is this is what gets me. I really like the fact that um, Bungie have taken a chance of this. They, you know, they, they in many respects the the other sections of the flashbacks have been really, you know, a very very Halo. I mean, if, if if you played any other Halo game in the past, you'll just go, yep, okay, that's Halo. But this is actually trying something, I think, remarkably different. Now, a hub world, you know, <laughs> it's it's hardly new. I mean, Christ, we just played Batman, which basically had the same kind of a scenario in many respects. I suppose so. Yeah. But um, it's. The real difference of this is it's, like you say, it's really dark, it's really moody. There's, I mean, they've described it as film noir. Um, and it's the saxophone music. Yeah, the, the music is very different, and it's it's almost like you're solving a mystery. Mm. That is something that Halo has never done before. It's never really been subtle in its approach. And um, the whole point is with this is that you have a visor. Yeah, all the drop shop troops have, have visors that actually kind of outlines the world so you can see, you know, work out. It, it's very... Um, as I'd call it, um, Ghost Recon light. So he has like, oh, that's a red guy, so he's an enemy, and and so on and so on. Um, but it being pitch black, it actually leads to like sneaking scenarios. And this is something that people kind of haven't really understood. If you've got your visor on, people can see you. There's a little light on the front. So if you try to sneak up to people with this little light on the front, of course they're going to see you. If you're in no visor mode, it's very, very dark, but you can almost you can walk right up to a brute, bang them on the back of the head, and actually move on your business. And it, there's a real tension to it, certainly if you're playing in the harder difficulty levels and going through on single player. So I think the hub world is a really important step for Halo, actually having somewhat of a different identity or certainly mm. this brand. Do you think they'll uh, continue with this? I mean, has this been popular enough with people for them to be an ODST 2 maybe? Or Halo Reach ODST, I don't know. Um, I'm not overly sure because um, ultimately the 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 gameplay is different. Mm. Um, you can't just go charging in. I mean, I, I think very much it's it's cosmetic. I mean, you don't have the, quite the same weapons as Master Chief would have. So you, you know, you have this new super duper pistol, basically the Halo One pistol with one head shot kills and an SMG with a, uh, with a kind of rifle scope, so that replaces the battle rifle. I found myself missing the battle rifle. Yeah, but yeah, the pistol pretty much does the same thing. 
Yeah, in all seriousness, um, yes, the pistol does the same thing, but if we'd had the battle rifle instead of the SMG, we could have got a lot more headshots in and been really tactical about who we shot out. The SMG is really hard to control. You know, you, it, mm-hmm. it rides up, and uh, the bullets just don't seem anywhere near as powerful. It's just a really good headshot, which is what the battle rifle has. And that, I can't believe I'm saying that, because when I played Halo 2 and they took away the assault rifle, I was pissed. <laughs> but... um the uh you know I, I do kind of miss it they 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 gave their reasons why i i almost would have could have done without one of the levels in, I, in terms of that memory I, usage for the i think it, it shares so many similarities with other halo games i think it was a wise decision to actually give you a different weapon set at the very least to say look you know this isn't everything you've just played before here's something different try something unique rather uh, than just okay but uh, if by the by that actual uh, that did, did work then because I did end up using the Covenant Carbine which is kind of similar to the Battle Rifle which I never used before because there was always a Battle Rifle available before we head head off onto the flashbacks which uh, really brings an entire different game I, I think it's, it's, it's important to note the hub world as I said before is entirely different and there is an AI called Virgil mm. that basically can actually guide you around so he blocks off certain doors and he illuminates say different signs to say go this way or there'll be like different street lights will turn on and you go right i go this way or there will in in different circumstances there will be a car alarm that starts up and actually guide you throughout the city um there's there's actually audio logs there's like i think 30 audio logs that basically you can you know be discovered throughout the city and did you like them he can guide you towards them um no, that, uh, they're interesting enough if you're a fan of the Halo um, kind of mythology. Um, but really, uh, I didn't think they were particularly well voice acted. Uh, no, it was, was like a really crappy radio play. See, but, I mean, not giving any spoilers, basically uh, Virgil is a, a main part of, of those audio logs and he will... He, she basically goes through a lot of different scenarios and a bit to the point where the Covenant do attack and there's different things that happen. So it, it's an interesting story in itself if you're willing to spend the, I suppose, the hour and a half to pick up these dialogues. Seven. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes a while to pick them to pick them all up, and it's it's not terrible. It's just you know I expect better. Um, storytelling from a, you know, a bungee production. Well, the audio log thing has now been done officially to death, so yeah. if you're going to do them, do them well. Basically. Batman was the last straw on that one. I liked Batman's ones. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I've just, I had to collect 270-whatever riddles. That was enough. You didn't have to. It was optional. have to. <laughs> just because it was there doesn't mean you have to. Indeed. But, um, right, Session. so... Obviously, once you've sneaked around this hub world, which is is a lot slower pace and almost feels like a training area for people that haven't actually played a Halo uh, game before, um, you end up in these flashbacks, which are basically a, a continuation of each one of these characters that you've met up on the the original bridge before uh, coming down on New Mombasa and things going wrong. So you've got like the cocky guy, you've got the you know you you yourself the rookie, um, you've got Nathan Fillion who's ah uh, Nathan Fillion. ah uh, Nathan Fillion. What a guy. He's great. <laughs> uh, was it, I mean, it Adam Baldwin? Yeah, Adam Baldwin as Jane, essentially. And yeah. uh, Alan Tudyk as Wash, essentially. And they basically play their characters. And yeah. then to the point where there is Firefly lines actually read out. Just like, uh, why not just do a Firefly game? That'd be so awesome. <laughs> but it's, it's a lovely nod to kind of just geek culture, that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a that, fun thing to do. No, that's great. So you've basically got these stereotypes uh, types of these guys, and, and say an example would be the first one you come across. So you you find a helmet that's stuck through a pane glass window or just lodged into a wall. It's a TV screen. Yeah, and you 
and you you know go out, you touch it, and I, like I said, I don't know whether it's the it's a flashback, whether it's just a, a recording that Virgil would have been doing as well. I'm not overly sure, but it, it then sends you into what I'd call a classic Halo uh, scenario world. So you come out of the dark, out of this hub world, and quite often into this very bright, very colourful, very Halo esque scenarios. Yes, agreed. <laughs> and this is kind of where I think the game slightly trips up upon itself. And I, I, I've described this. I mean, there's what nine nine different scenarios, I think. Mm. Um, and it's almost like the greatest hits of Halo at this point. It, it. The good thing about it is they've refined the the way that the uh, map can be laid out. Um, they've refined a lot of the combat scenarios, and all of that is fantastic. But they've actually made them really, really short. Um, so you you kind of just get going in in these story segments, and like ten minutes later you'll be done with the story segment, and you're like, huh, back to the hub world then. Well, they, at least that was my experience of it. Mm. I mean, I really liked it because I'm a Halo fan. I like the way that Halo plays. I mean, how Jesus Christ, anyone following the, the drinker uh, take a drink at this point? <laughs> They're will dead. Be, will be dead. Liver failure. Yeah. Um, okay, right. Well, for me, herein lies the big question: Do you play this for the first time co-op? Or do you do it on your own? Because, I mean, it's different. I, I think it's different for everyone. I tried this on my own. It was good, but I, I felt like I was a bit overwhelmed, even on heroic mode. And I found that I was I was ending up being completely sniped to hell and dying. And then jumped on with Ratto Albion from uh, Game Adult. Thank you very much, mate, for helping me out. The whole day, we played this game to completion. And... Um, we, we just, you know, ended up running through and watching each other's backs, and that was good. And then we met a uh, another friend of Al- uh, Albion's, possibly Jay? I, I don't know, I can't remember his name. And um, after we were three, we just charged through the whole game, only slipping up at the very, very end, where it wasn't about keeping us alive, but keeping alive uh, an armoured car, which just kept blundering into trouble over and over again. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, it was uh, it was easy on Heroic with three people, uh, but it was great on Heroic with two people. So I think really we should be able to have just... We, we, it, could we have upped the difficulty to Legendary at that stage? Um, my honest opinion is, I mean, having played so many of these games in the past, if you're going to play four-player co-op, you play on the high, hardest difficulty level. And three-player co-op? Uh, pretty much the same. I mean, to give it some context, I mean, yes, I've I've basically played all the Halo games, uh, on Legendary and quite uh, uh, most of them I've got through most of the campaigns on Legendary single player as well so because you know I just love the franchise um, but the f- so it came out on the Tuesday uh, I had my group of friends uh, Jambo, Nero and Shiny uh, started on Legendary when I got back from work at 5 o'clock, 4 hours later there we go campaign beat, Yeah, 4 players on Legendary which kind of much the same for me Although Which is short, break. Um, but it's a double-edged sword because I honestly think the hub world is a really interesting place if you're playing it single-player. If you're playing it co-op, it completely shatters the illusion because instead of picking and choosing fights, say that you see two hunters in the distance and if you're playing on your own, you're thinking, there's no way I can take those down. If I do, I'm, you know, I'm probably going to die a couple of times. I'll just go avoid them and, and head towards this other mission. That just becomes, right, they're going down. Go boys, let's go get them. Keep your visor off, and uh, I didn't even realise that until I uh, started playing the game the second time. I was like, hang on, if I keep it off, I can sneak. Brilliant. And that's instrumental to the single-player game. Yeah, but the double-edged sword is that once you go into the campaigns, the campaigns have always been better in in co-op, because 
although the AI that you're fighting against, certainly legendary, is let's face it, quite legendary. It's it's Rufus. still it's yeah it's still one of the best AI patterns out there. I mean, yes, it still is ultimately a pattern, um, but you know their use of equipment and power drainers and everything being in front of you and the grunts being a hell of a lot more aggressive and take a lot more bullets to take down and suiciding you with two grenades at the same time. Yeah, is is all fantastic. But your buddy AI. It's still uh, an utter joke. I mean, getting in, getting into a, a warthog and getting your guy to actually be the driver, he will drive you off the cliff. <laughs> given, uh, given any opportunity, he will be aiming for that cliff or just literally the suicide mode. I'm going to ram into this, this wraith, whether it's going to fire a shot at me. So it's, you end up in a scenario where you, you end up driving, but then you want to shoot. So because it does its, its massive arena multiplayer so, so well, um, it's... I think the actual plane of Halo really has done at least in two-player cop, and probably the sweet spot there then is probably two-player in legendary. I think that's probably less less breaking of the illusion. Yeah, we were doing a bit of that yesterday. It was uh, still tough, but I felt like we could keep proceeding. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I'll talk about before we do Firefight is the things that were missing from the game. And these were definitely careful decisions that they made. Um, they, there was hardly any Warthog action. Uh, there was, there you was, had your, your, your Brigadier Warthog level in there. There was a bit with the, the, the Safari Park, and there's mm-hmm. a bit at the end. But um, That's uh, two out of yeah. nine. Two out of nine, okay. But um, I was desperate for a Warthog the whole way through the, um, the hub section. Don't spoil whether or not you can get any kind of vehicle in the hub section. I want people to be able to find out for Just themselves. Just saying. You didn't say. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no Warthog. Definite decision on their part. No Warthog music, as in the, the classic... And that, to me, unfortunately, is Halo. So when it's never kicking in, I'm never thinking, yes, it's Halo. Because... It's not kicking in, and because that it would appear is twinned with Master Chief. Um, so I mean, are they going to bring it back for Reach or not? I mean, I I think Reach is going to be a very very different pro- uh, project to this, and actually I think there, there's still the rumours out there that Reach, although a first person shooter, is still going to be some sort of squad based uh, game because if it follows everything we think it does, which is from the book, then there's going to be a hell of a lot of uh, Spartans out there. Yeah. And uh, there's, I think there's going to be some sort of squad tactics. Of course, they're not going to try to alienate their audience somewhat. So, how in depth that will be, but I, that's my my feeling of it. I kind of missed Cortana talking in my ear all the time as well. Well, again, I mean, obviously you can't be Master but, Chief, but here's here's my here's my biggest problem, and this is completely separate from all the other the rest of the package. I had an absolute blast playing this game. I the you know the four four hours twenty minutes that it took us to play through it was an absolute amazing experience. It was you know I, I liked the hub world. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, it, it, like I say, I felt like it was a, a greatest hits of some of the parts of levels that have been before in all the other three Halo games. 
So I've got, you know, whether you should play for it or not, it's not really a question. But if I'm actually having to sit here and, and talk about this and review the, yeah, the game, I think its shortcomings to me are fairly obvious. Although Nathan Fillion and the, the half the Firefly crew are in here, the story to me just isn't good enough. I, I kind of, it, the other Halo games are epic. You know, they're these big space sci-fi operas and, you know, there's, you know, Master Chief, it, He's just a fantastic character. You know, it, we'll put it, he's, he's iconic. Yeah. Now, these ODST guys, I mean, especially the guy that you play, the rookie, doesn't say anything throughout the game. You, I had no attachment to that guy. He could have been shot and I'd be like, right. Again, that was a definite decision on their part to do that, but yes. why? Why? Because they didn't want, didn't basically, um, uh, want to unseat Master Chief. I, I think that the funny thing about all this is playing Halo, a lot of the game felt like just playing Halo. Um, so, combat, combat differently. Yeah, you, you can't take quite as much damage. No, you don't. You know, you you can't gr- uh, throw grenades as far. You can't, you know, jump off a, you know, a cliff and still land at the bottom and not take any damage. Um, but you, as an ODST, apparently you can still flip over a warthog. Um, you know, jump onto moving vehicles and kick people out. Um, you know, all, so it, it still ultimately still feels very very similar to Halo 3. But I think this biggest problem though is the story. I just wasn't. In, engage with it, it was it's an interesting to have you know these these flashbacks and i think that's something very different so i like the style the way it's presented but it there's an epicness that is is lost and i think a lot of that's to do with the levels actually only being like 20 to 30 minute levels slight spoiler warning here about the ending spin on by one minute if you don't want to hear what happens at the end um i'm not going to say what happens at the end exactly but um the whole way through the game i was thinking oh this is not going to end well. These guys are completely surrounded, completely outgunned, completely out, you know, outnumbered. And they're, they're very, very human. And there's this sort of sad saxophone music playing. And, and you know, you got that advert that came out just beforehand. I was thinking, this is going to be a, like a last stand thing. These guys are going to die. And the very end, they get in the chopper and fly off. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> any big revelation? Any twist? Like, you know, Rookie takes off his helmet and it's someone? No. And it was like, so there is no plot twist, there is no extra plot, there is no proper, like, there's no epic feel of, I wanted to see Nathan Philly and sacrifice himself for, for everyone else and, and go, oh my god, he was did just have the, the guy best. dying. <laughs> Who died? He did have a guy dying, he didn't die in the end, but he was, you know, he was severely injured. Exactly! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Metal, Metal Gear was his name? High, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah, and that's my that point. I mean, I'll, I'll round up some of my feelings about the whole the whole thing in the end. But it, unfortunately, I think the single player campaign does feel like the the expansion. I think it was originally was, and although they do some neat tricks to uh, give it a new lick of paint, um, it it to me it doesn't feel epic enough as a proper proper Halo game. But I appreciate them trying something different, even if it is baby steps. And I think clearly to me, this is a franchise that is going to continue on. Um, uh, whether it'll be after reach and maybe they'll they'll continue the ODST stuff after reach with you know a new engine and maybe they'll have some a better grasp of uh, the character in that because yeah you know what I missed I missed Master Chief and I, I don't care you know, that may be sad and people may be laughing at me at home but I miss Master Chief and I miss Cortana I even miss the Arbiter in a way so <laughs> I didn't get I certainly didn't miss the fucking Flood who by the way uh, don't put, it, no we don't know they're going <laughs> no no so they're not in it that's a good thing they suck yeah um, anyway, so, so I'm glad they didn't turn up okay right now we can talk about Firefight Firefight best part of Halo 3 ODST well Firefight is is the thing that gives 
this legs. Um, exactly. It's it's basically it's been said a, a thousand times. It's basically horde mode, but horde mode is basically survival mode of many other games that was before that. Um, uh, horde mode basically just had its own take of levels within that system and Halo. So you know, Halo represents that a bit more because. The basic setup of it is you are once again you have four ODSTs you, you've set down on, in a map then which is a section of taken from one of the city or one of the areas that you. It's played. a small arena type place. Yeah, yeah you, but they're all based on something you you've played within the game. Yeah. Um. So you have this arena and you, you're dropped in there and of course you have the onslaught of, um, the onslaught of brutes. Um, and we're just covenant. Covenant. Yeah. So the grunts. Um. You just think without the elites, it's not the covenant, don't you? <laughs> well, mm, I do miss the elites. Yeah. <laughs> <I've never laughs> never did, did it quite the same as the elites. Uh, well, the, the, the thing that really jars me about the brutes, you hit them a few times, their armor all pops off. It's like Arthur from Ghouls and Ghosts. Mm. It doesn't even just pop off in sections. Just oh, They explode and they're, and they're naked. That frightens me. <laughs> naked ape. So Anyway... <laughs> So, I mean, as we've all learned from Gears of War and in its horde mode, co-op survival mode is bloody good fun. It's a blast. Um, because it's there's less arguing about, you know, man, he didn't kill me, what the fuck, you know, oh, man, you know, he's cheating, hacksaw. It's more about, <laughs> it's more about go over there, you do this, you do that, you know, hold that point, you cover in the right, I'll cover the, the left. I mean, if you're playing in a good team in Halo 3, yes, you do have that kind of uh, dynamic between you, you know, your friends. But this just brings it out, you know, in tenfold. I actually think. Yeah, absolutely. And also, and here's the most in- in- interesting thing about it. Uh, for me, I'd never really played for points before, but mm-hmm. it's very much an enclosed system. And to be able to, every time you make a kill, have little points pop up, it has that kind of Call of Duty for like addictive, like mm-hmm. salt peanuts. Well you know, oh, done. It's like Peggle. It's like da, 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 every time you kill a hunter. So, um, yeah, it's, so uh, it, it can't, you know, people can run out and try and, you know, do every man for himself, but, uh, they're gonna get killed pretty quickly if you're playing on any difficulty worth being respectful yeah. of. Uh, um, Lefty and, uh, I and uh, a couple of other people were trying to get, uh, was it 200,000? Yeah, it's 200,000, the parlor. But we were trying it on easy, and it was oh. like crawling through glass. Because it's basically it, the multipliers. Like five points around. It was yeah, the multiplier's too low. You start off, uh, I think it's eight times multiplier. So legendary. we jacked it up to legendary to see what the difference was. The difference was we died immediately. <laughs> I think um, probably the, the sweet spot for us. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to basically say you know, how it actually works, it, you have sets and you have waves and you have rounds. So um, a set is when you entirely... You, there's three rounds to a set and there's five ways to a round. And you have to get three rounds, basically complete a set. If that makes sense? I think it does in my head. Yep. So you have waves of, of different things. So the first wave, it's just your normal grunts and, yeah, headshots are plenty. And then the second wave, you're progressively harder. And, the, and you always get the... The fifth wave will always be um, normally a hammer, hammer guy, uh, and normally guys, chieftains. yeah, chieftains, and basically just you know the hardest, you know, the hardest mother effers in the world. Fuckers, we can swear. Yeah, I know, but you know. and uh, of course you know the high, the highest set structure, you, you know, you you get the harder and harder they become, and the more they actually send out. And it's a simple concept, but how they actually. Uh, t- put a, their, their, home, uh, their own little halo twist on it is that the skulls actually come into play so the mm. skulls that you collect for all these other games um, such as you know you can put the mythic skull in to make it even harder on legendary um, but if uh, so I, I don't know you 
like party poop, headshot, and they, they make a lovely party poop. Or you can put, you know, black eye, so if you get shot, then your stamina goes down, so ultimately your shield is gone by that point. But you have your to screen goes red. Up to actually get your stamina back. Yeah, um, catch where all the uh, the grunts end up throwing, you know, 50,000 grenades at you at once, which is always... Why would you want that? Well, it always makes you... I mean, we actually, whenever we're playing it uh, in the main game, we always put that on, just because it's... Because it, you then have to re- uh, do it so much avoidance. So it just always keeps you on it. But this is the game, and the game is basically has... I think it's eight skulls that it, it can toggle on and off. So towards the actual end of the game, uh, you basically have all the skulls that come on. There, there is no end. You just mean yeah. like eight or nine rounds in. It suddenly starts... Yeah, once you get like five sets in, then yeah. uh, yeah, the game starts going batshit crazy at you, and it's like, no, you should die at this point. Yeah. Um, and the the beauty of this, you have part-times uh, for the achievements, so they're 200,000s. Um, that's pretty hard to get if you're playing on, on anything. Well, if you're playing on easy, it, it will take forever. If you're playing on normal, it's quite possible to do normal, but it normally takes about an hour and a half if you're doing it on heroic and you know, so forth, so forth. So the point where you're doing legendary, it'll take 45 minutes, but you're likely to die before then. Yeah. Also, the twist is that, that you have seven lives at the start of this. Um, you've all got to share them. Yeah, it's a shared pool. So if one person loses a life, obviously the life goes from that pool and everyone looks at that person and goes... <coughs> you start to feel really responsible for your yeah, whole team. Your it, it kind of forces teamwork, which is a really great idea. Because, you know, it if does, you run yeah. around like an idiot, then you're literally wasting other people's lives. So, so Yeah, so yeah. You, you have these waves, the five five waves, and once you complete the five waves, that's a round complete. So it gives you basically the you know uh, a life each back, so you end up getting four lives right. uh, back for completing the round. Um which is quite hard, and what can actually happen is um, you'll be running perfectly long with 13 lives, thinking, yeah, this is going swimmingly well. All of a sudden, you'll be down to zero lives through just the, the entire hectic, and you're on the last kind of big wave to complete the final round, which is the final set, before you get, like, eight lives uh, back again. And you'll be down to, like, the last man standing. Everybody's watching you know, from their dead corpses <laughs> at your screen. And uh, there's a hero medal that comes up at the end if you manage to take out. And we've had scenarios where, you know, you've been chased by four hammer guys and somehow you manage to take them out. And the entire room just goes, oh, yes. And you go off again and quite often then you, you'll push forward and actually, you know, get all your lives back. Um, but it's the teamwork. It, it's Halo is so very, you know, it's, it's fantastic with its enemy AI. And basically it takes that AI and puts it in a very, very confined space. So a lot's going on at once, and there's an achievement basically to get up to set five um, on heroic difficulty, of which it took me, me and the, the group of people I actually play it with, um, about four nights to do. But we finally did do it. We actually got up to set six on heroic. But it was amazing how we, we had to have such team tactics. It was... One person takes out the shield with the uh, the plasma pistol, you know, Charles plasma pistol, so he can take out all the the enemy shields. There's, there was me who was basically the heavy weapon weapons guy, so I was always had rockets and um, fuel rod cannon mm. uh, and nothing else. So I was just like on patrol, killing the big guys once the you know the person had taken down the the shield. Um, then you had the guy, you know, expert at headshots, was doing the basic sniper rifle, and then the all round guy that was just mopping up anything that was getting through the, the ranks. It took two hours and 40 minutes, I think, to get the achievement, and it was amazing. It was one of the best you know, co-op experiences I've ever had because it was there was so much teamwork, and there was a times like an hour and a half, half in, where we had literally lost all our lives, and we thought, oh, no, this is about to go very bad, and we just rescued it and then just piled on for another, basically, hour and a half. So um, absolutely fantastic. I, I really recommend it. 
one of the problems with it, of course, is that it's still based on the Halo uh, free campaign engine, which means you can't actually do matchmaking. It, it has no facility to do that. They never built it into that that side of the engine before. So, so you pretty much have to get a friend on to play. Yeah, it. unless you've got people on your friends list that are playing Halo Three, that stuff isn't accessible to you, which I think is a fairly poor That's excuse. A, but it's a good idea. I would not want to play with a stranger, frankly. It requires teamwork, and it's an experience I would not want to share with someone I don't know. Yeah, I, it's, it's it's the thing that gives it legs. I think the the co-op campaign I've gone for it a couple of times now, um, and you know it, it, it's interesting stuff. But I, I think really, if you're looking, you know, for that very very tight combat experience really firefight just gives that to you in a lot easier scenario I, one, of the, one of the problems I do say with it though is if you're playing on easy or normal um, it's quite hard to die as, uh, as a team on occasions so you can end up going for about 3 or 4 hours to the point where you're like alright well, let's, let's just quit this um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing but it just I, it, it's a bit it's like oh, st- we're still going we're still going and, and it's you mean there's nothing to really aim for and if you're good then why are you playing on that level anyway yeah I, I yeah and I, I guess that is true also it would have been nice to have some sort of integrated leaderboards even if it was just amongst um, <laughs> so competitive what um, we, you can still go to bungee.net and all that stuff is up on there but it would have been nice if you know I mean Halo did so much with its matchmaking system to push you know the console uh, competitive multiplayer you know so forward from where it was and yet, simple stuff that you would expect to be in there isn't there for for this separate disc. Right. So I don't know. I just find that as, you know, for such a big game, somewhat disappointing. Okay. Now we're beginning to run out of time, so yeah. let's just do the uh, the other bits as an afterthought. Well, almost the other bit is fairly Halo easy. Three multiplayer. The entirety of it. Wow. Yep. If you've not got Halo Three, you can probably pick it up very very cheaply uh, um, secondhand, but um, or even brand new. But uh, all of these maps you'd have to buy online, and they cost uh, you know a hefty amount. So frankly, yep, thanks for uh, that. Yeah, cheers. Um, now you've already bought those maps. I bought all but three. Is there three exclusive new maps on this disc? Yeah, it, it basically works out. You get the eleven maps that would have come on the original Halo pre-release, and then you get the ten maps which were DLC, and eventually I think at least one pack of those became free anyway so um, and then you get three new mythic maps which are really actually really really fun and really really interesting a lot bigger um, very different from stuff that has gone before and I believe there's a Halo 2 remake in there as well um, I want to play some of that because I haven't yet and uh, if, if there's any time tonight after I finish editing yeah. this thing that'd be great um, so w- what is there to say about it really well for people that are kind of using ODST as their first kind of jump into the, the Halo franchise, and if they didn't own, you know, Halo 3, I don't know why that would be, because Halo 3 is so cheap now. New 360 but, um, owners who haven't yet picked it up, maybe? I don't know. Quite possibly, but, but it's, it's actually a really good, on the face of it, it's, it's a pretty good deal, because you are getting a lot of D- DLC content that did, you know, personally cost me probably 20 off. 24, 25 quid, something like that. And Halo 3 is still worth getting just for the campaign mode alone, which is really, really good. I yeah, think. And I, and, but I would have Apart bought from these... from the Cortana level, which sucks ass. I would have brought these other new free maps for 800 points, so really, when you consider that into the, the whole price structure, it's not a bad idea. I guess some people feel like you know, it's somewhat of a cheater, but I'm just, you know, they didn't even have to put this you know, that in there. So the fact that they did, I, I think, you know, and it, it, it basically just shows up as Halo 3. It goes all into Halo 3 achievements, so it's basically just the Halo 3 stuff it's a really good way of equalizing everybody on there and saying what you've all got the maps go play you know and that's a really good because we still had you know scenarios where we'd be playing you know the new maps and I haven't got the uh, most recent pack 
Yeah, so, and, and it was just like, oh, well, I can't play it because I haven't got those mountains. Yeah. God's sake, you know, that's right. Narrowed down the, the hopper again. Um, so, but it's it's so different. I mean, I, I was surprised how different Halo 3 multiplayer was. I mean, I hadn't played it for a little while just because I've been you know, playing a, a lot more games, and I got used to how ODST worked. And jumping into Master Chief's shoes again, oh, my God. He, he can actually throw a, you know, a sticky grenade from one side of the map to the other, where it's you know, not quite the same in ODST, and you're flying around these places. And once again, if you're not used to Halo 3 multiplayer, you will pretty much get your ass kicked pretty quickly, even with its... Uh, I mean, it's the same, Call of Duty, same. So probably best to get some uh, time in on the campaigns first, on uh, on Legendary, frankly, to, to get yeah. good. Um, right, okay, so you get all that, plus... The Reach Beta. When when's that going to be out? <laughs> I like on the front of the box it says Spring 2010. That could be any time. <laughs> yeah, who knows when that is? <laughs> right. But either way, you know, it, it's it means it's a it's a way to get people to keep hold of this thing and not flog it off, and it's that's a really good idea because it means that they sell a hell of a lot of ODST first day, first week, and then no one flogs it because why would you flog it if you want Reach? If you're into that series, then you want to play Reach. It's a great idea, and there should be more of that in brand new games. There should be a reason to keep hold of the thing, Uh, and it's it's a good idea. Um, General evaluation, what would you say of this game, out of five? Um, I've I've still had people, it's even happened on the forum, where, you know, the the inevitable comparisons against, you know, the Call of Duty that's coming out this year. Why? Um, I still say it's such a different game. I, I... I love how yeah. Zinzak said it was like a cross between, uh, you know, Space Marine Call of Duty and Sesame Street. <laughs> and, you know, he, he's I not... get what he's saying. Yeah, he's, he's not far on. I mean, one of the, the things... I mean, I love the single-player Call of Duty stuff, but the multiplayer stuff just turns me off something rotten because it is so serious and because everyone takes it so seriously. Halo has always had its, you know, it was its tongue firmly in its cheek. Yeah. Uh, the it's dialogue is... It's ridiculous what you're yeah. fighting for a start. Yeah, I mean, its dialogue has, has always been over the top, and you know, there's plenty of moments where I've literally Bet just stopped and laughed because of what the grunts have been saying to me. It's a big, bright, and colourful world, and the fact that it's now set on New Mombasa maybe brings it somewhat into the you know the same ballpark. But it, it and it's a space opera; it's nothing the same. Uh, but it, the combat style. You either like one or you, or you like the other, and I, you know, I fall on the Halo side. And these things have been battling it out now for Christ since 2007 really and Halo you know keeps taking the top spot Call of Duty comes out take top spot and it, they just keep on you know reverting over and over again but my evaluation on this game taking all that aside I, I think the co-op well, I think the campaign although relatively short um, the storyline of it isn't particularly anything interesting certainly if you, you know, you've been a big fan of the other Halo games it's still completely and utterly worth playing and if you have four other buddies and uh, you know you, you put the difficulty level up I still honestly think that you know it, it's ai and some of the open world combat scenarios with the warthog and, and ghosts and wraiths and and all that wonderful stuff that it's done in the past is completely worth playing through and i going back and i actually uh, played call of duty 4 um and realized how very straight and narrow that game is it's like go forward go down this corridor spawn enemies over and over again and they won't do really anything different i mean i know that's going to probably get me a load of comments back but that's just the way i feel um so I think that's worth it. I think firefight mode, as long as you've got people on your friends list, I think that's worth it. And the, the added bonus of all the the extra content, um, I'm, 
if you're if you're a fan of Halo and you're probably going to play this multiplayer stuff, I guess you would have already owned it. But it's a nice little thank you to the community. I I guess what the sticking point is, a lot of people were complaining about the price. Um, I personally picked up my copy for thirty pounds. Me too. Um, and what's I, the complaint there? Sorry. What? Well, that you know they because originally it was meant to be an expansion expansion pack and Microsoft promised it as an expansion pack, but you know it came out as full retail. Well, I haven't seen it full retail. I I've, I've basically seen it thirty four ninety nine everywhere. Um, and with Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 recommended retail of £55 so we're charge more if we could bro. £45 and, but you know what some of those people aren't wrong I mean I do feel that I think this actually feels like an expansion it, it feels like an offshoot from the original Halo series and that's exactly what it is so I, I can't really have a go at it for that I mean I, like I say I think some of, the, some of the elements are weak some of the elements are really strong I, I can see myself playing Firefight probably for all the way up to the point where the Halo Reach beta <laughs> stuff comes out to be quite honest uh, because it's just an enjoyable experience and ultimately this is where I've fallen on it I, I think as a fairly short package in many respects um, it doesn't do anything particularly new in its flashbacks but I think the hub world is really interesting um, there's part of me that just wants to say you know what it it's probably deserves a fall um because you know it is all the same, and if you're a fan of that stuff, you just you, you know what you're falling yourself into. But I'd be lying if I didn't say, with all that told, it's probably one of the best games I've played since Halo 3. Just because of just because of the fun, and I've probably already sunk 40 hours into it. Um, and there's not many other games out there that have drawn me to that. So from my own my own personal view, I give it a five. If you're into Halo, you're gonna love it. If you're not into Halo, I wonder whether it will make you a convert. Um, I don't. Th- I think it's actually quite a good bridge between Call of Duty and uh, the Halo series because it's not quite so wild and crazy. You could maybe go on to Halo Three from this uh, if you, if you were brand new to it. But at the same time, it's uh, the, I would class the single player uh, campaign uh, on its own as a four star game. But yeah. the amount of extra stuff you get in it elevates it to me at least to a five. Yeah, you know. That, that's no, I think that's a good way just to quickly sum it up from my longly rambling of trying to sum it up. <laughs> no, I think that's that's pretty much I see eye to eye with you on that one. Um, I'm, I'm, I've never been quite as much of a Halo nut as you, but uh, I've always had a really soft spot for the uh, series. And I'll buy the next Halo game and probably the next one after that. Okay, Tim, it's time to plug your podcasts with all your might. <laughs> um, well, let's see here. I've got uh, GameHounds, GameHounds.net. Um, you may know me as the curmudgeonly Commander Tim. Very, um, very grumpy. I'm not, I'm not really... <laughs> as you know, I, it's, I'm not really that grumpy in real life. It's, uh, it's a persona. Uh, and then there's also TheWidgetShow.com. We brought that back. Um, that one's kind of as... It's, it's a coming out as we can do them kind of thing. Uh, we, we brought that back after a three-year hiatus. Uh, but no, you can also go over to uh, thewidgetshow.com and check out the, the show there. Um, that one's mostly a uh, it's um, immature conversation uh, with a lot of technology jargon. We uh, the people that are on that show are very very into technology. So 
Uh, you'll be hearing us saying anything about uh, new processors coming out to what programming languages we're liking that week, any of that stuff. So if you're if you're into that, that may be a good, interesting thing to check out for you. Well, all, don't all make me choose between the programming languages. Which one do you prefer as a glue language, Lua or Python? <laughs> That's it's right. I'm like to choose between my children. <laughs> Python made programming fun again. I can fly. So that's that's it. As I said before, you know, Tim at CamaraTim.com if you want to email me, talk about any of this stuff. CamaraTim.com is the best way to find out what I'm up to. I don't I don't post as often as I should, but it's got links to all my crap I do. I, I'm very into the, the the social networking kind of stuff as a as a marketing tool, I suppose. Right. But uh, check me out. Indeed, check him out. And that is all from us this week. Remember to be in with a chance to win a giant bag of PAX-related swag, including T-shirts, games, codes, and all sorts of exclusive goodies. Go to iTunes, give us a review, and represent your country. Next week, we have on Sean Sands and Julian Murdoch of Gamers with Jobs. Now, we did promise them last week, but had to move them forwards due to time conflicts. So thank you very much to Julian and Sean. You've been very patient with us in emails. We've sent like 50 back and forth. The music for the end of the show this week is from a friend of the show, Marianne Cole. It's a particularly appropriate song for ODST with Firefly and Battlestar Galactica influences called In the Black. And it's from her album, Got to Fly. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Tony Atkins. Happy trails. You're in the black, in the black, in the black. Ain't it lovely, baby? Not coming back. You're in the black, ain't you? Free. No more threats, no more debts. You're in the black, baby. You left it all behind, but you're still fine. Yeah, you're fine still. We wish we could see you. We thought you might find time to write us now and then. You're free. Since you asked, I'm doing great, really I am I don't think, I don't blink I just press on, press on I'm doing fine, I'm not inclined to crack Anytime soon, baby, you left us all behind But we're still fine, I swear we're fine still We cry for no reason Late at night when we run out of thoughtless things to do You're free Now and you're lonely Won't you please come home so we can cry with you I hear that you cry too Pay debts you will not own We cannot reason with the unforeseen And we can't compromise When there's no 
Things to do.